Okay, folks, our guest on this week's Irish NFL show is a guy we see uh, on the Sky Sports NFL channel a lot, uh, on Pro Football, talking about Florio. Does a fantastic job with NBC, with NBC Sports. I know a lot of people read his Football Morning in America column uh, at about 6 or 7 a.m. every Monday morning. Uh, look, Peter King, it's Peter, it's, it's an honour to have you back on the show. A very, very warm welcome back to the Irish NFL show. Oh, Michael, thanks a lot. As I said before we came on the air, I've watched a few of your shows. You guys are fun. And you know what is so cool about it? I found this out a few years ago when I made a trip with some NFL players to write about them. Uh, we were in Edinburgh. We were in uh, Liverpool. Um, I forget where else, but we were in four or five spots. And I just simply could not believe. You expect fans to be passionate, but I remember we were in Liverpool one night and some guy said, um, I think the Ravens might've had the, I don't know, the 23rd pick in the draft last year. And the question came up, what, uh, do you think Derek Barnett is still gonna be there for the Ravens or do you think the Eagles will pilfer him before he gets to the Ravens? I said, I have no clue. I mean, you know more about this than I do. But that's the kind of just like earnest fandom that I've encountered so often, uh, both with you guys and I mean, almost anywhere. It's why, like, I'm, I, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to Germany this year. I got to see that game. I got to see that experience. Tom Brady playing in Germany. I mean, that is going to be one wild scene. I have no idea what it'll be like, but, and you know what? I'll just say one other thing. If Dan Rooney were alive, there'd be a game in Dublin. And you guys should not give up the ghost. Don't give it up. You really should. You should push for this because I, there's no doubt in my mind. And I don't know, where would they play? Croke Park? Yeah. I mean, I saw you two there a few years ago and there was 85,000 people there. I mean, that is a big friggin' stadium. And uh, I don't know, I would, I would assume, I don't know this, would an NFL get regular season game sell out in Croke Park or not? I, I definitely would think Absolutely. so. I'm, I'm sure these boys would, would, there would, would be. Pe- there would be people outside who can't get in. Yeah, yeah. It's I don't know. That's why I totally, I totally understand why they're so big on London. Uh, it's sort of the hub and all the spokes of the wheel can come from all over Europe, almost on a day trip and see the game. And I get it, but I don't know. I've been on the NFL to share the wealth a little bit too, but anyway. It was uh, obviously fantastic, Peter. Great to have you on the show. As you know, again, I think it's the second time now. Great to meet you in LA at the Super Bowl. Uh, I was, I was literally, well, I was telling these guys, uh, I was nearly starstruck seeing you in the press because yeah. I was Peter King. Had to say hello, but uh, you know, I, I know Peter. Our accents from real life are, are completely different to this, and I, I'm sure you're probably standing there going, "What is he saying?" I can only imagine. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I mean. You know, we were talking about Belfast before, and I said, man, I wish I used the, uh, uh, you know, I wish I basically had used the subtitles on it because, you know, I'm watching it there in my house, and I think I understand 
but I miss like, I'd say a quarter of all the concepts in that movie, but it was still really an interesting movie. But no, I, uh, my wife and I have been a couple of times now. We're really, uh, we're big Ireland fans. So anyway, good, good to be on with you. Well, Peter, there's a college game in Dublin in August. So if you want to come back, we would be delighted. Who's to... playing? At Northwestern are playing Nebraska. Wow. It's a Big so... Ten football game. That is really, really cool. Yeah, we've oh. uh, we had Mark Murphy on with us last week. We invited him. Obviously, Zach Taylor from the, the Bengals, uh, another uh, alum connection there. So if Peter King wants to join the party, you're more than welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I might I might miss it, but I don't know. I'll I'll look into it. I suppose, Peter, when, when this goes out, we you mentioned the, the draft and the interest that there is from fans over here, but we're going to be, you know, less than two weeks out of, uh, when this goes out. Yeah. And I, when we look at the, the draft, one of the interesting things is the way in which it, it, teams have changed their approach. So if you look at, say, 2015, 2016, almost 90, 95% of the teams had a first round pick. This year, it's 75% of the teams. It obviously huge, huge drop there. And, and it's been dropping over the last few years. Is this the, the Les Snead effect? I think it's partially Les Snead, but I also think it is, um, look, I had a long talk with, uh, with uh, the general manager of the Chiefs, Brett Veach, after the trade, obviously after the trade for... Um, uh, you know, when they traded Tyreek Hill. And one of the things that, that he said was that, look, because I think, I don't necessarily think it is all the less need effect. I think it is a, a team like Kansas City looking at its roster and its financial flexibility and asking this question. If we commit for, let's say, probably you're thinking mentally at least four years with Tyreek Hill, and it would have cost them probably 27 or 28 million a year on average. And you've already got the financial commitment you're making to Patrick Mahomes you're really starting, and they have a couple of other very highly paid guys. You're already asking yourself, is this the smartest way to build a team for the next five years? And so I don't necessarily think they said, well, look at what the Rams are doing. They're making these big, bold trades. And so we'll make a big, bold trade. I think in the, you know, I think several teams Green Bay was a little bit different because in Green Bay, that's a very interesting story. Uh, as I wrote in my column, ba basically, Devontae Adams told the Packers, do not franchise me. I don't want to be here. I want to leave. Part of this is because Devontae Adams basically gave the Packers a lot of chances to sign him to a peak of the market contract which he was determined to get. And when he couldn't get the peak of the market contract, uh, when they refused to give it to him, he said, okay, that's it. 
you know, you've seen me here long enough. I don't want to argue with you all the time. You're not going to pay it. Just, just let me go. And so the Packers then basically said, what's the best deal we can get for Devontae Adams? And, you know, I think they got a pretty good deal. They didn't get a, a, a Tyreek Hill kind of deal, but <clears throat> they got a pretty good, <coughs> excuse me, a pretty good deal. <clears throat> and so I think in the Tyreek Hill case, what happened was they said, look, we can get uh, five draft choices, three of which are, are high picks. And uh, we can use this to help restock our roster. The coincidental thing, and I bring those two teams up because if you look at where the Chiefs and the Packers are right now, both teams have two picks at the end of the first round and two picks at the end of the second round. And the reason why that is so valuable this year is that the receiver group in this draft is very rich. It's the best position in this draft. So if you're the Packers and if you're the Chiefs and you say, okay, do I want to commit 28 million, maybe 30 million bucks to a player who is getting a little older. And in the case of Tyreek Hill, you know, a 60 year guy who is a very, very thin guy. And, you know, what happens if he starts getting beat up a little bit? Um, so what you can do is you can spend the money elsewhere with other, other players on your team. And in the case of uh, Kansas City, they are ridiculously confident in their ability to draft and to choose wide receivers. You know, that plus the fact that they've picked up a couple of good receivers in the offseason. I think Juju Smith-Schuster, I, I mean, look, I think he might catch 100 balls in that offense. He is going to be the type of target who Mahomes is not going to be able to turn away from. But, but I just, I, overall, your, your initial question, I don't mean to drone on about this, but your initial question, I think, is really interesting about how teams uh, are, 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 you know, looking at the Rams and maybe some teams are, are following the Rams. But I just think there are more teams that I see right now who don't want to make, let's say, a wide receiver, a $30 million player. And what they would rather do is try to draft two of them and just keep the line moving, keep it going so that over time, you start developing another really good wide receiver who is one-tenth the cost of, uh, of a Devontae Adams or Tyreek Hill. Peter, um, well, so it wasn't at the magnitude of the trade we saw last year where the 49ers moved up to three. Last week, we had the, quite a detailed trade between the Saints and the Eagles. And I suppose large, I suppose vast majority feel that the Eagles are thinking long-term in terms of a quarterback next year. But you were quite positive on your podcast this week of the Saints and how there, there's reasons why they're being aggressive. And they were quite close last year. They nearly made the playoffs. Do you think they're finished or in terms of moving up again? Or is it, they're there to pick two particular players, whether it's an offensive line or a wide receiver? Brian, I think 
the best thing you can say about the Saints. Um, Mickey Loomis is the guy who is at the forefront of this deal, but there's somebody else who works there by the name of Jeff Ireland, who has had a great run at drafting. Um, probably over the last five or six years, all things considered, where they've been picking uh, and all that. I don't think a team has drafted better overall than the Saints have. And um, so I will not be surprised if there is a player uh, that they have targeted. Maybe there's one of these quarterbacks they like. I wish I knew. I don't think they're going to move up high for anyone but a quarterback. I just, that's not really, I don't think they want to sacrifice all the good. They're not going to do it for a tackle. I would be shocked um, because I just don't think they got Ryan Ramchick at the end of the first round uh, in 2017. So I just don't see them doing that for a tackle for a quarterback. If they love one of them, who knows, but I think what I would say about where they are right now, I think Loomis put it the best to me. He goes, listen, there's such a wide variety of, of how people are ranking their players this year. And I've heard this from a bunch of GMs that we could get one of our top 20 players sitting there at number 48 with our third pick in this draft. So he said, when we made that trade, we were cognizant that we're going to get three of the best players on our board. And that is why I think they made it. They've gotten a lot of criticism for trading next year's one, which is understandable. And then the fo uh, two the following year, that has gotten a lot of criticism. And I understand why they're getting criticized. But I think if you're the Saints, you got to look at this. Your, your defense is maybe one or two years away from its expiration date. You know, you might have two more really good years with that defense. Cameron Jordan and, and Marshawn Lattimore. And, and, and I'm not, I mean, Marshawn Lattimore is younger than Jordan. But I think that the way they look at it is we, we can beat the Bucks. We know we can beat the Bucs. We think we're better than the Bucs, even without Breeze. So, you know, to me, I think there's a time when you have to go for it. And I think that's what the Saints are doing. Talking about the Bucs there, Peter, uh, you've been very vocal. And, and I personally think you've been at the forefront of this. I mean, I, we've talked briefly about the international expansion of the game. We're now looking at the concept of the new marketing agreement for, for, for international teams. And you've really been at the forefront of talking about the potential of these four teams in the German market, maybe alternating as maybe hosts or, or visitors over the next few years. There seems to be a lot of rumors here about uh, the Bucks maybe playing the Chiefs this year, but obviously that's all still TBC. Is it your understanding that that would maybe alternate year on year between those teams, or is that yes. maybe a preference? Yeah, here's what's here's what here's what I'm I'm almost positive you're going to see happen in Germany. So you know there are four teams: there's New England, there's Kansas City, there's Cincinnati, and then there's Carolina. I think I'm right. Am I right in that? Yeah. 
So this year, uh, the NFC teams have nine home games. And next year, the AFC teams will have nine home games. I'm hearing that next year, uh, it's either going to be New England or Kansas City with the host game in Germany. I'd be surprised if uh, if Kansas City uh, was the 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 road team this year against Tampa Bay in the game in Germany. It just to me it doesn't make a lot of sense when they're either going to play in Germany in 23 or 25. I don't know. It's a little bit weird. Plus, the fact is that I feel pretty sure that the Bucks are going to want Patrick Mahomes for a game in Tampa. Um, you know, you don't want to give away all of your great games. But anyway, I digress. <clears throat> so because the NFC teams have uh, nine home games this year and the AFC teams will have nine home games next year, it's very convenient for the NFL to say, um, we're going to give the NFC teams when they have nine home games in 22 and 24, it'll be Tampa Bay in 22, Carolina in 24, and then the AFC teams, New England, and then Kansas City in 23 and 25 in some order. And I don't know which will be which, um, but that seems to make the most sense to me. You know, we had the good fortune to sp to speak to Coach Rivera during um, the Super Bowl weekend in LA, and one of the things he talked about that was the importance of the QB position in in a real QB driven league. And obviously, they made a play for some QBs in the off season, um, but not having not got Wilson, they kind of immediately went with Wentz. Were you surprised that they didn't take more time to look at other options given what they had to give up for, for Wentz? Or do you think that, you know, Wentz could be a good fit there in Washington? So I think what happened with Carson Wentz in Indianapolis is the owner, Jim Ursay, who can be an impetuous person, was extremely angry after the last eight days of the season. Uh, they lose at home to the Raiders. They need to win one of the last two games. They lose at home to the Raiders, and then they get swamped by the Jaguars in Jacksonville. And all you heard in the day or two or three after that is how Jimmy Ursay was seething about how they played and particularly how his quarterback played. And um, I can just tell you this. I think Frank Reich, when they made this trade, the coach of the Colts, when they originally made the trade, that Frank Reich thought that Carson Wentz was so damaged as, you know, mentally as a quarterback that he thought, it could take us two years to get him on the right path. And at the end of this year, I think that's certainly how he felt, that it's going to take another year to kind of get him on the right path. So 
what do you what do you expect if you're if you're Frank Reich and your owner is really upset and you know you might not be able to get that second year, you can fight another battle. But you know, do you really want to do that? And are you positive about Carson Wentz? And I don't think either he or Chris Ballard, the general manager, were positive that Wentz is is going to be able to turn it around. So I think it was hard for them to go in and pound the table with the owner and say, you got to give us one more year with Carson Wentz. That's the problem. But let's look at what Washington did. I think that Washington has been used to seeing a better Carson Wentz. And, you know, those in the front office in Washington and Ron Rivera to some degree remember Carson Wentz as one of the top six or eight quarterbacks in football back in 2017 era. He's still very young. I think the one thing that, um, I think the one thing that has really hurt Wentz is that he's proven to be not the most coachable player. Um, He's one of those guys who has a reputation for, I have the answers and I know what I'm doing. We're going to be okay. And um, I don't think with his recent history that that does him any favors. So you're right. It's a, it's a questionable call. And I think had this been a year like last year with quarterbacks, I bet Washington would not have done it. I think they would have taken a risk. I think Washington would have said, well, at the least we'll get Mac Jones, <laughs> you know? Um, now I must say that last year when they were drafting, they were drafting as p- kind of the final playoff team. And this year when they're drafting, I think they're at number 11. And so what I mean is that if they had the 11th pick last year, they would have definitely gotten one of these quarterbacks. And this year, I'm not even sure that the best quarterback this year is worth, um, is, is better than what Mac Jones was last year. So I think you're in a, you're in a tricky spot and, uh, you know, but I do think that Washington will be a little bit more patient with Wentz. Peter, that, that kind of brings me to the question around these quarterbacks in the draft. Um, you know, at the end of last season, a lot of people felt that there was no standout quarterback initially. It was Piggott, then Malik Willis. The last week, it's been Des- Desmond Ritter who's getting all the attention. Matt Rule has a relationship with Kenny Pickett from their time in Temple. They're picking at six. He's kind of under pressure as a head coach. This could potentially be a tough year for him. Do you think he, he goes quarterback? That's, that's such a great question. I think in an ideal world, he'd love to trade down. And Scott Fitterer, the general manager, they'd love to trade down. That is a place where the owner is putting tremendous pressure on the head coach. And so Chris Sims said something I thought that was really, really smart. He said, here's the problem with taking Kenny Pickett in the draft, whether you take him at six or trade down to pick a number wherever and take Kenny Pickett and the headlines after that is that, okay, 
Carolina's got their quarterback of the future. And Sim's point, which I thought was so good, is that they'll go to training camp and the players will see it, media will see it, the coaches will probably see it. Sam Darnold's better than than Pickett. And so, and, you know, it's easy to say, well, Sam Darnold hasn't played well enough in the games. And you're right about that. But don't you want, if you draft a player, don't you want that at quarterback in the first round, don't you want that player to come in and show signs of, I don't know when he's going to play, but whenever he does, this guy's going to be really good. I mean, what happens if he comes in and Darnold is playing a lot better than him in training camp and just looks to be a more skilled player with a better arm. That's the issue I think that Carolina faces. Now, the other issue that Carolina faces is they have one pick in the top 135 picks of this draft. One pick, and that's it. So if they take a quarterback there, they're almost done. You know, it's, 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 it's pretty much over for them at that point. The only reason I'm saying this is that there are a lot of factors in Carolina at play. And if they draft a Kenny Pickett at number six, that would definitely be overdrafting a player. And so all of those things, you put those all together and you say they're, they're in a tough spot. <laughs> Carolina is really in, in a tough spot. Who knows? They may love him. They may love Malik Willis. They may really love one of these guys, pick them and be euphoric about it. We'll see what happens. But my gut feeling is they're probably going to sit there at six and take one of the quarterbacks and put tremendous pressure on that quarterback right away. I will tell in under two weeks, Peter, and look, we all love hypothetical situations. We all love maybe guessing certain parts of the schedule. And if you're the NFL, Peter, this big kickoff game, and I asked a few people this last week, this big kickoff game on NBC, obviously, I think September the 8th, September the 9th, who should open against the Rams and SoFi? Denver. Because I think... Now, look, I think it's going to be one of two teams from what I'm hearing. I think it's going to be Denver or Buffalo. Now, the natural tendency is to say Buffalo and Denver, I'm sorry, Buffalo and the Rams is one of the best games of the season. You're going to get a great rating on September 8th, Thursday night. Uh, you don't have to use the Buffalo game right there. You're going to get a great rating if you use even a good opponent there. There's one issue. Last year, uh, the NFL scheduled Dallas and Tampa for the first game of the season, the Thursday night game. It was a great game, went right down to the end. And so you say, well, what does that matter? Who cares? The problem is the NFL got a fantastic rating. Ratings were up 25% last year, year over year, with the previous year's game, Patrick Mahomes against Houston. 
So the last thing the NFL wants is to be sitting there 5 p.m. Friday afternoon, the ratings come in from the first game of the season. And the big headline would be ratings down 18% over last year. Is the NFL in a slump? Have we overrated everybody's mania about the NFL? And so I, I realize that that sounds like a dumb reason to take Buffalo and to put them in the first slot. But I think overall, the NFL believes that Buffalo at the Rams, Josh Allen, Stephon Diggs against, uh, you know, against Matthew Stafford and, and the Super Bowl champions is a better number, a better rating potentially than if you play him against Denver, even though everybody will say, hey, let's look and see what Russell Wilson looks like in a Broncos uniform. First game post Seattle after 10 years in Seattle. A lot of us would say, let's see that one. But I think overall, the game potentially would be better and more even all the way through four quarters if it were Buffalo. So I think it's going to be one of those two. I can't tell you which one. If I were the NFL, I'd play Denver and I'd save, uh, I'd save the, the Buffalo game till later in the year. Well, we, we will find out, I suppose, the, the schedule release uh, will be in the not too distant future. So we'll, we'll find out. But Peter, um, I want to just go back to, to Washington, because in fairness, you have been talking about Dan Snyder and, and his ownership of, uh, of that team for quite a while. But stories today that um, the House Oversight Committee have written to the FTC regarding potential, um, you know, violations given everything you know that that you have written about in the, in the past it, 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 does this move the needle in terms of a potential ownership change there if it's true it moves the needle plus the NFL is still investigating a sexual charge against Daniel Snyder um, in the wake of all the other charges that they let him off easy for and everybody said, well, what do you mean? They find him $10 million. That's not letting them off easy. Well, that's also 2% of the team's annual revenue. So I don't mean necessarily big deal, but big deal. So I think now um, these two things could be game changers. And look, I've told this story a lot, but... When I was just, when I was very young covering the NFL in the 80s, from 1985 to 1988, I worked for a newspaper in New York. I covered the New York Giants. Their arch rivals were Washington. And in those days, when there would be a game, New York at Washington, they had this old rickety stadium in Washington called RFK Stadium, Robert F. Kennedy Stadium. And there were four or five times every game I ever covered there, if it was a big game, where you'd be sitting in the press box. And the press box, if you can imagine this, was kind of like slung down from the upper deck of the stadium. So it was almost like if you looked at it, um, 
you know, if you looked at it, it's almost like it was added later and it was just like hanging down from uh, the upper deck of the stadium. But so that, that press box would vibrate and shake and you'd feel like you were in an earthquake. And the first time I ever felt it, I'm holding on to the table in front of me, like, holy crap, what is going on? And everybody was just chuckling because it happens there most games. And so that was a great rivalry. That was a great team. They had great ownership in Jack Kent Cook. They had a great coach in Joe Gibbs, a great GM in Bobby Bethard. Both those guys are in the Hall of Pro Football Hall of Fame. And now what do they have? Over the last 22 years now, since Snyder has owned it, they have been the turd in the punch bowl. That's all there is to it. They have been a lousy franchise. And Daniel Snyder has run this franchise into the ground, period. And for some reason, the NFL has been defending him and propping him up and, and helping him and, and all this stuff. And look, uh, it's in, the, the franchise is an embarrassment. Last year, toward the end of the year, they played a game against Dallas where people who were there in the stadium thought it was 70-30. Dallas at Washington, which used to be a great rivalry, 70% Dallas fans in the stadium. It's just, it's, it's dispiriting. It's borderline disgusting. And so I think if, if these things are right, the NFL needs to do everything in its power to make Daniel Snyder go away. Peter, my team has unfortunately been dealing with that scenario as well, which 70, 30 percent fans. Um, a giant, I'm a Giants fan. Obviously, you've yeah. covered the Giants back in the time. John Mara and Steve Tisch have finally brought in a GM who's never had any connections to the organization. <clears throat> it feels like it's a complete rebuild again. Fifth pick and seventh pick. A lot of Giants fans feel they should consider trying to move out of seven for the force next year to put themselves in a position to go after one of the quarterbacks next year. I think they're going to try to do that. Yeah, I think that's realistic. I can guarantee yeah. you they're gonna, they are gonna try to move one of those picks in a package and get a one for next year, no question about it. Uh, Joe Shane is the GM you're talking about. Yeah. I'm very, very high on Joe Shane. I think he's a bright guy. He's a progressive general manager. He's gonna use analytics a lot more than Dave Gettleman did. Dave Gettleman used it as basically a, um, uh, he didn't take analytics nearly as seriously as he should have. Um, they were almost like a party favor to him. Um, and so to me, I like Joe Shane. Um, time will tell if Brian Dable's the right pick, we'll see. But Joe Shane, uh, I think the early reviews on his, uh, uh, you know, on the job that he's done so far, I think have been very positive. As to what I see the Giants doing, they're going to be able to sit there either at five or seven and get a great left tackle. Uh, not well, I mean, they're going to sit there at five and get, I think, one of the two tackles in this draft who's, you know, basically does not one of the two tackles who does not have 
really any question marks. Um, one, Evan Neal from Alabama, and the other one obviously is Iki Ikwanu um, from North Carolina State. I think that the Giants would love to come out of the first round if they could get one of those tackles and then trade down into the bowels of the first round and then pick up another one next year. I think that's what they're going to try to do. The only problem that I see with this strategy is that there just aren't a lot of teams that want to move up high in this draft. I'm not saying it won't happen, but I'm saying that I think it's going to be hard and the Giants probably are going to have to take less value to do so than than they might normally uh, than they might normally be expected to get. A lot of people feel that Brian Dable is was a large part of the reason why he came in is that the job he did with Josh Allen and they see similarities was he's probably not at that level to Daniel Jones and he can essentially fix Daniel Jones as to what John Mara said at the end of the season that they've done everything to, to ruin the guy's career. Here's the thing about the people who would want to throw Daniel Jones out with the garbage. Um, I think you could have put Joe Montana on that team last year. You could have put Tom Brady on that team last year. It would have been an absolute disaster, no matter who was the quarterback of that team. Um, it was a non-competitive team. Uh, the coach wasn't good. Uh, the talent surrounding the quarterback wasn't good. Kadarius Tony and Kenny Galladay were drafted or signed and drafted um, to give them a big league, big time receiving core. And they were both hurt the whole year. Um, and so I don't know how anybody would expect anybody to be good in that environment. So <clears throat> the Giants are doing the absolute right thing. Joe Shane is doing the right thing. Dable's doing the right thing in giving this quarterback a real chance this year. By the end of this year, if he's unimpressive, probably they're going to move on. Everybody knows that. Daniel Jones knows it. But they're doing the right thing in giving this guy a real chance with uh, a big-time general manager, a better head coach, and a better head coach than Joe Judge, and hopefully uh, a healthier team. But we'll see. You know, we're going to do a very quick, quick, uh, quick fire final round before we let you go. And I'm going to do the curse here because this goes out on Sunday and ask you about uh, Tyron Matthew Honey Badger. And but what will probably happen is you'll probably be joining the team in the next two or three hours now and you'll be eating dinner and laughing. <laughs> but um, where is he going? Because, like, he obviously, I think he visited the Saints last week. I mean, where, where is he going to end up, do you think? I mean, I don't know who's going to sign him. Um, my feeling is that he's got two high quality years left. He is one of the best leaders in the NFL. I just think if I were Tyron Matthew, I would do pretty much what Bobby Wagner did, even if it meant that he was going to sign for peanuts. I would sign in a place that I thought had the best chance of winning and a place that my contract was all incentive-based, you know, based on how the team does. Because I think wherever he goes, they're going to win. I don't know where he's going to go. 
I know Philadelphia likes him. I know the Saints like him, but I don't know who's going to sign him. Peter, um, I suppose you, you've written um, really eloquently in the past on the um, you know, former Broncos owner, Pat Bolin, and um, the team now obviously in the sales um, process with a, a price tag in and around $4 billion. Um, just um, wondering, um, I know I think it was maybe um, last year you said Jeff Bezos wasn't interested. What price do you think that the Broncos might fetch and how good a GM will the, will the new owner be getting in George Payton? I don't know who's going to buy the team, but yeah, I'm hearing the same price that everybody else is hearing. I think um, uh, it was either the Athletic or Sports Business Journal said that uh, they were looking at a price tag of $4, four billion. Um, I think it'd be hard to buy a franchise that uh, looked better for the next few years. Usually a franchise when it's sold is a little bit downtrodden or down on its luck. Um, you know, he, here you've got a quarterback who wants to play another eight or so years. You've got a young general manager who's had a very, very good run his first year and a half um, and who is highly respected around the league. Uh, you've got good offensive weapons in the running back position and at wide receiver, and you've got some very good pieces on defense. The Broncos are a heck of a team. And I don't know if it's going to show because of the division they're in, but I think anybody who would be serious about buying this team will be getting a top 10 franchise that plus the fact that you know look they've had a bunch of no shows the last couple of years because they've had a terrible quarterback situation um and no matter what they've tried to do starting with uh you know john elway post peyton manning the last seven years have just last six years have been a debacle so i think they've got the quarterback right now and that's going to be a team that should be a threat the next five or six years. Peter, final one for me is, I suppose, we can't do this without mentioning Tom Brady. He's, he's returning after his 40 days of retirement. But obviously the past fortnight has been the story about him potentially getting involved with the Dolphins from an ownership standpoint. Do you buy into that story, just, that substance, or do you think it's just off-season? Um, I, I think there's something to it. Um, but, um, I, I asked someone in new Orleans because here's the crux of the story that Sean Payton and everybody else, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> Sean Payton and Tom Brady believed, I think that if they wanted to, that they could have gone to Miami uh, as a tandem. Now, I think Miami would have loved that, obviously. But I think there's one thing that is missing from that, okay? And the one thing that's missing from that, I think absolutely is that the Saints, uh, 
I don't think we're going to trade Sean Payton. In fact, I was told that the Saints said if he coaches anywhere this year, he's coaching for us. And there's one other factor here. So Tampa Bay and uh, and and Tom Brady been a fantastic match, just a fantastic match. But I also think that you are looking at one other factor in this. The owners of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the Glazer family, have always been uh, looked at, even after they win a couple of Super Bowls in this century, they've always been sort of looked at as the second team in Florida to the Miami Dolphins because the Dolphins had Don Shula. They had the perfect team in 72. They've got the history. And um, I think that the owners of the Buccaneers, the Glazer family, who obviously everybody in, in Europe knows, uh, they're such great and popular owners of Manchester United, um, that I just find it hard to believe that the Glazer family would have allowed Tom Brady to go to Miami. I just, so again, yes. Was there something to the story? Did Sean Payton, I'm assuming that Sean Payton wanted to do this. Um, he's got great affection as does any offensive coach, whoever coached, who wouldn't have great affection for Brady and wanting to coach him. But I just think there are some things that people haven't thought of in that. I think there's been, it, will people in Ireland understand the phrase level jumping? There's been, there's been a gigantic level jump to just assume that Tom Brady uh, was going to, uh, was going to go play for the, the Miami Dolphins. And I'm just not sure that would happen. Hell of an off season. So unbelievable. Far, it's not, unbelievable. Hey, look, I've done it 38 years. There's never been one like this before ever, and... ever, ever. I can't imagine. And look, I do think that this is a sign of things to come. I really do because look, who knows next year, will it be DK Metcalf and AJ Brown and, whoever else, younger receivers who might be so demanding that, that they'll get sent off in trade. They might get sent off now, but, but I, I just think we've reached a level where, you know, I was doing something today for my column uh, next Monday, and I was looking at sort of the highest paid players at all the positions in football, um, you know, in the last few years. And if you look at, you know, 10 years ago, 2012, when the salary cap was 120 million, now it's 208 million. It's not even double what it was 10 years ago. But right now, the, in 2012, the highest paid player average salary was Dwight Freeney with a $19 million average salary. And right now you have... 13 players who have an average salary of 35 million or more. So what's happening, I think now is that teams are looking at all the money that they're spending on all these players. 
And they're looking at this and they're saying, okay, we understand doing it for a quarterback. We're not paying a wide receiver 30 million. We'd rather take that 30 million, which is, you know, on average, which is 14% of our salary cap. We'd rather take it, draft a couple of wide receivers and, uh, and, and try to make our team a little bit less top heavy. Absolutely. And you mentioned there about your column, obviously Football Morning in America. You get the Peter King podcast as well. And I know you're on the Sky Sports NFL channel a lot with uh, Pro Football Talk and, and obviously over NBC Sports and Peacock assets as well. Peter, uh, as we said, both before and in person, if it wasn't for people like you coming on, especially yourself, Peter, this show wouldn't be what it is today. And we massively appreciate it. I know that we can hopefully maybe repay you in a, a schnitzel or a German beer on November the 5th, or maybe <laughs> hey, November well, the 13th. I, I'm looking forward to seeing you guys over there. It'll be a lot of fun. Peter, thanks so much for coming on, man. Okay, good to, good to, good to see you guys again. Take care.